been a, a, a blessed week in many ways. Uh, I know we're going through the book of Luke, but um, late Wednesday night, I think it was, the Lord put this on my heart, and uh, so we're going to take a break from Luke, and we're going to be in a psalm this morning. I'll tell you about it in a second. You don't have to open up yet. Um, and then, and this all transpired, um, it's, uh, all right, so it all transpired this week when um, I got a, a pain in my lower left side, and uh, just, it was, didn't go away, and it was bugging me, and then it started to swell a little bit, and I thought, all right. So I called a, a, a dear friend who I was introduced to by another dear friend who's a doctor, and um, I said, you know, I, I hate to bug you, but you said call, and I, I don't have a doctor because I'm not a doctor-going guy. Um, I'm thinking maybe I should take a look at this, or maybe, and he, he said, come on in today. I'll, I'll arrange it. So I went in there, and uh, he sets me up with a CT scan. I'm like, dude, what's going on here? So I go in for the CT scan, and they make me drink all this fluid. Yeah. Oh. And then, and then I'm waiting in the waiting room, and uh, I'm like, okay. And uh, they bring me in. Oh, before, this is a cool part. Before I go into the CT scan, in the waiting room was a member of our congregation who's, you know, going through some struggles, life-threatening, and has been in this position for a while. And they have been, they were, you know, the, the, the clock is ticking, and they have to have this updated scan every month. And the joy on this person's face, I'm not going to reveal them, but the joy on their face was unbelievable. And as I'm sitting there irritated that I have to be here, they're sitting there realizing, and I say this to Micah, they get to be there. Meaning that because of the care that they're receiving, every day is a gift. And, and they're living in such a capacity to, to reflect that. And if, if I had gotten no treatment and only that opportunity, my day would have been made. I, and, and I was so encouraged. And then I, I go into the CT scan, and they're like, uh, we got to put an IV on you. I'm like, really? Why? Well, we're going to put contrasting fluid in you. And I'm like, okay, all right. Oh, okay, there we go. It's in. <laughs> and he says, I'm going to step out of the room as the machine is operating. And I'm thinking... <laughs> Why? Because it's dangerous, you know? <laughs> and, and he says, uh, and when I put the fluid in, you're, you're, it's a warm sensation. You're going to feel like you peed your pants. You can take that out later in the <laughs> recording. And I, I'm thinking to myself, okay. So I, I just sit there, and I'm, I'm at peace with the Lord, and this machine starts working. And the voice says, it's going to start going now. Click, 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 click. And it goes over and it says, I'm back. And then, and then he says, and, and now I'm going to put in the contrasting fluid and, and you're going to feel, and he repeats himself. And then the contrasting fluid comes in. And he wasn't kidding. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Just, you know, I didn't. But, you know. <laughs> hey, it's your fault. You came to service. You get to hear this every week. It's. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm laying there as it's going through, you know, the final pass, and, and uh, he says, all right, we're all finished, and, and at the conclusion of it, another voice comes on, it's like the voice of God, another voice comes on and says, now it's time for your rectal exam. I'm like, 
And all of a sudden, the technician comes in, he says, I didn't say that, and it's Dr. Spiegel. He had come down from his office to be there and like lighten my day by telling me that I'm gonna be receiving something I didn't want. <laughs> but he was joking, thank God. And, uh, and he's a funny man. And Dr. Spiegel just says, you know, you, you got diverticulitis. I'm like, whatever that is, okay, let's, let's have some fun. And then Dr. Gottlieb looks at the, the CT scan. He says, yeah, I need to send you to a gastroenterologist. So I'm like, okay, you know, just going through the motions, you know. And I was feeling tired, low-grade fever. I get into the gastroenterologist. We sit down. He comes in, makes it a, a point, you know, takes me right away. And I'm thinking, wow, door, gates are opening, doors are, God's plowing the path. This is kind of cool. And I sit down with um, Dr. George. And he says, uh, we need to put you in a hospital for five days, water only, and an IV antibiotic drip. I said, wait a minute, what? What are you talking about? And he said, uh, yeah, this is serious, and, and if it ruptures, you'll have sepsis, and it's, it's very, very dangerous. And I said, okay, all right, look, I got a ton of things to do. Why are you putting me in a hospital? That's the last place I want to go. Uh, are you wanting to put me in a hospital because you're afraid I'm going to eat? And he says, most patients do. Yes, that's my concern. I said, I've fasted on water only for 15 days before. It's not a problem. Let me go home. He says, all right, I'll let you go home. He says, but we'll order a drip IV and we'll have a nurse come and do it. I said, fine. I said, now, are you doing the drip IV because you're still concerned I'm going to eat? And he said, yes. And I said, are you not listening? <laughs> I said, is there another way around this? He said, well, I'm gonna prescribe you some antibiotics, two sets, they're pretty heavy um, because the, it's late in the afternoon and the order for the IV won't probably be able to make it there till tomorrow. He says, take the pills, do what you're supposed to do. If you're feeling better, we'll, re we'll reevaluate the drip IV. I said, fair enough. And I'd already been fasting up through then, uh, 10 a.m. that morning, I had anything to eat. So I, I go home, I take the antibiotics, I water only. And, uh, and I'm laying in bed, and next day, same thing. Swelling's down. Doctor says, okay, we'll stay with the course of the pills. And I clear my whole schedule, and I'm thinking, I don't know what diverticulitis is, but I'm pretty stoked that you say that word and you have nothing to do but sleep. <laughs> I'm like, I'll take that any day of the week. And I, I, I was just spending precious time with the Lord, and then when you're fasting and you don't eat, your body spends most of its energy consuming uh, food and, and, and uh, eliminating it. So when you're not doing that, you, you don't sleep as much. So four or five hours of sleep, my head pops off the pillow and Michelle's still asleep. So I go over to the couch and I'm reading and I'm going through all of the burdens because now I finally have a time to just evaluate. It's like trying to land planes at LAX. And I just, one by one, I just start giving these to the Lord. And I'm having this really precious time of prayer, just laying him at his feet. Lord, take this, and will you take this? And I'm looking at the expanse of all these things, and it's kind of giving me a little bit of anxiety as I'm looking at all the stuff. And there's other things that you're not even aware of, but all these things are going on. And, and I'm just giving them to the Lord, one by one. And then I pick up the word, and I start reading. And this, you know, just one after another, just like a wave of, of peace comes over me praying for my family, for my kids. Uh, I, I prayed for Michelle because she had the women's tea, and I'm just praying over everything, and it's such a precious time. It's like God's right there, and I'm enjoying it. And it went on for a while, and 
he takes my anxiety and he gives me a peace that surpasses all understanding. And one of the Psalms, which if I, if I did a, you know, a poll and had you raise your hand, which I'm not gonna do, um, I, I would say maybe half the room could recite this Psalm and the other half couldn't. And, and yet when I began to read it, one that I've already memorized, but reading it afresh, it's as though I came alive to it. And it was in this psalm that the Lord just settled my heart. And I thought, Lord, would you do that for everybody in the church? And so we're not gonna do Luke. We're gonna do Psalm 23. And I, if, you, if you're thinking, I came to church and I'm gonna be studying Psalm 23, and that's your attitude, get over it, amen? <laughs> So if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 23. The folks walking down the aisle will give you a Bible. I want everybody to have a Bible because even if you've memorized it, I don't want you making the people who haven't memorized it feel like you're smarter than they are. Now you just open it up and then you can recite it, but at least have it open. Psalm 23. Before we, well, you know what, let's, I typically am the one who's reading, um, but there was something in my heart when I personally recited the words laying there that night. And I want it to be the same for you. So open up to Psalm 23 and would you stand please? This isn't common, I'm not gonna do it every Sunday but I'm gonna ask you to read along with me. Psalm 23, are you ready? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, would you comfort the congregation? Would you cause us to come alive to this precious psalm written thousands of years ago but has comforted millions over the centuries? Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that your peace would fall upon this room. Your comfort would minister to every heart and we commit this time to you now, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat. Having time to read, I was reading a, a bunch of stuff, and um, I, I love that time of fasting because uh, your concentration is so in tune, and um, I mean, I'm even... I think I'm four days into this fast. I've got a couple more to go. And, and in the process of it, uh, it's amazing how the Lord ministers to you. And one of the pamphlets I picked up and I read so deeply touched me because one of the things that I was troubled by that night was not so much the things I had to do, but the condition of the nation in which I live. It's it's been troublesome even here in our own community, let alone the state and the nation. I often say people are not the enemy, they're the opportunity, but at times, 
I wonder. I get tired of it. I get frustrated by it. That's my flesh, and I give it to the Lord, and he calms and quiets my heart and gives me a love for my enemies. But when I see just the disdain and the turmoil, and I read the writings of men and women across the country on either ideological side, and the vitriol, and the anger, and it's rising, and so is violence. And there's such a sharp divide in the nation, unlike anything I've experienced in my adult life. I was troubled by it. I'm struggling with the fact that as a Christian in California, we are a declining population and a targeted one. We are ridiculed as a peculiar people that would believe in a God who has created us and a God of standards. We're ridiculed by our willingness to stand in opposition to those things that are in direct violation of the things we believe. We're ridiculed and belittled and marginalized. And in the midst of all of it, that I would be even attacked in the paper for hosting a symposium on alternatives to public education. And as I think about that, I understand why the folks in opposition to, to me and us would say some of the things they say. I wouldn't want to be called a pagan. I wouldn't want to be ridiculed and maligned. I didn't like that. I wouldn't do it again. But in the same regard, I think all of us have to come to a place of reason, but it's now been divided that there are people that truly hate. And then in the course of it, I struggled over even what's transpiring with the ministry that I'm involved in in Montana. And an article came out in the Daily Beast in relation to this ministry. And as I read it, I was just so saddened by the depiction of Christendom and their anger. And the article did not have veracity. It wasn't truthful. But some of it was necessary to reveal how the world sees the body of Christ. And I, I was struggling over it. And I just, I struggle because no matter how heavy the battle, I always want to be able to see hope. And at times, you struggle to see it. Where will this nation go? What will happen to the church? What will happen to God's people? What is awaiting us in this future of a secular progressive move upon the nation? Who are we? What are we doing? Where are we going? Why are we here? And all these things swirling in my mind and then to read Psalm 23 and to have my heart settled, why? As I read another pamphlet, I was moved, deeply moved. This is 
the opening line of that. Every generation rewrites the past. In easy time, history is more or less an ornamental art, but in times of danger, we are driven to the written record by a pressing need to find answers to the riddles of today. We need to know what kind of firm ground other men belonging to generations before us have found to stand on. The author was John Dos Passos. Interesting man. He wrote Land of Hopes. And John De Passos was a man of the radical left in his youth who later moved to the right. And he wrote this in 1941. He goes on to say, and it won't be in front of you, but he goes on to say, in spite of changing conditions of life, they were not very different from ourselves, these men of the past. Their thoughts were the grandfathers of our thoughts. They managed to meet situations as difficult as those we have to face. To meet them sometimes lightheartedly and in some measure to make their hopes prevail. We need to know how they did it. In times of change and danger, when there is a quicksand of fear under men's reasoning, a sense of continuity with generations gone before can stretch like a lifeline across the scary present and get us past the idiot delusion of the exceptional. That is why in times like ours when old institutions are caving in and being replaced by new institutions not necessarily in accord with most men's preconceived hopes, political thought has to look backwards as well as forwards. You think to yourself, what does it all mean? I guess the struggle is, ideologically speaking, whether you're left or right or in the middle. Why are you here? Do you find purpose in life to pinpoint someone as an enemy, to devour them? Is that your cause? Is that your purpose? What is the end result? Every great journey begins with the end in mind. Is it a removal of anyone who is not like you? And I don't speak to one side, I speak to both. The vitriol is present in both areas. And we build an animosity and an enmity. Ideologies compete. There either is a world with a God or there's a world without a God. But what is the end result? What do you hope? Are you a, a cosmic accident, some primordial soup? Are there no standards, no absolutes? Are you so established in your absolutes that no one that would tolerate them is welcome in your world? Where do we stand? Are people vile and they're the enemies? There are times where we're to, we're to stand on those things that are immovable. I agree. It is not right to take the life of a baby. I stand upon that. And as we stand upon these truths and we, we contend with a force and a government that would state to us that our children must be indoctrinated in this capacity, then we, we stand. And a war of words begins. But it doesn't stop at words. People become violent. We're watching that across the country. And as I look at this, my heart is heavy. I'm burdened. 
It takes me back to the Civil War. At the surrender of the Confederate forces at Appomattox. The general of the armies of Virginia, Robert E. Lee, surrenders to the general of the, U, uh, the Union forces, General Grant. Robert E. Lee comes in fully dressed. Grant is shabby. He's got his pants tucked into his muddy boots. They sit down, and Grant is gracious to General Lee. He says, your men may retain their sidearms, and we accept your full surrender. Lawrence Chamberlain, a Medal of Honor recipient from Gettysburg, was present and accounted for what occurred right after that. As this army of ghosts began to exit Appomattox of the Confederate forces, putting their muskets one by one, surrendering them to the Union forces, Lawrence Chamberlain said, nobody uttered a word. There was no vitriol, there were no caustic statements, there was no anger. They saw a defeated person that looked just like them and their hearts broke. They'd given everything they had and had lost, but they were still their brothers. They were still part of the human race. They had contended for ideology that resulted, conservatively speaking, in the death of 650,000 soldiers, and, and liberally speaking, well over a million. One in four soldiers died that fought in the Civil War. One in nine lost a limb. But nobody reviled them. They went home. Lincoln would write in the second inaugural address to bind up the nation's wounds. He didn't see the, the South as an enemy beyond ideology. He wanted to appeal to their higher nature. The war was fought and lives were lost and they surrendered and yielded and they went home. But it had to rise to this level that we would say another human being based on the melanin of their skin is permitted to be enslaved by another. And people believed it to be true and were unwavering. And though they were ridiculed and mocked for standing and saying, even though it encompassed a large portion of the economy of the nation, people rose and said, this is wrong. They were vilified, they were, they were mocked. But then the truth rose. And the nation went to war. I don't want war, but we are contending for ideology. I can't waver. One man is determined, another is insistent, and not a small dispute arises, it says in the book of Acts, between Paul and Barnabas, of all people. Mankind loses their way, and in losing their way, tragedy occurs. And when tragedy occurs, 
That's where we find ourselves. In every generation, we rewrite the past. We want to look at the Civil War and say it was a war over states' rights, but when you go to the original documents, it's not true. When you research the original documents of men and women who are willing to write down what they experienced firsthand, you find in every secession document of the South that the whole point was slavery. We can rewrite that as people of the current do now. We have revisionist history. I was a history major at Fresno State. We don't teach original documentation. We indoctrinate. We rewrite history. And we do it for every generation of the past to justify our present. But when you redefine the truth, the laws of nature and nature's God will come due. And we will find ourselves at odds. And we will be struggling. Now we have leprosy in Los Angeles. Hansen's disease has now appeared. We have tuberculosis that's appeared. The state is in a mess. It's not working. But where are those with the voice of truth who will stand? Where are they? It was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who stood in opposition to segregation. And as he was in that prison in Birmingham, Alabama, and the, and the pastor said, you're on the wrong side of history because you're in prison, he said, no, you're on the wrong side of history because you're not in prison with me. But he would go on to write later and say, I don't know what's worse, the voice of my enemies or the silence of my friends. I was encouraged by Tuesday night. People came out, both happy with me and both very not happy with me. And those voices blessed me. But it was the silent voices that troubled me. Now if those voices were directed in orchestrated prayer, I am thankful. But as every generation rewrites the past, we come to a place where history no longer becomes an ornamental art we are driven to the written record. Today is National Grandparents Day. I'm a grandparent. We honor them, they're wise. My children come to me and soon my grandkids will and they say, Dad, Obi, that's my grandpa name. Can you help me with this? I need wisdom from the past. For the young, as I've said before, you're in a train facing the future and it's passing by. You can't even pay attention to me because your phone is bothering you. And everything is happening now, now. And there's no time for the past. You don't want to be bothered with the voices of history. You don't want to be bothered by the foundations laid before you and to understand why they're there. Everything's new and exciting and bypassing these and tearing down the walls and moving forward in advancement of progress. But I sit facing you on the train with my back to the future and I'm seeing the expanse of history and the wisdom that I find. And I can share with you when you're troubled with everything going so fast because I have an answer. I found those answers as a history major in the past. 
I've been drawn to that place. I share this entire story and all this with you because the reason why I was drawn so fervently to Psalm 23 is because this is truth and it was written thousands of years ago. And most of us learn this psalm as a child, but not today. It's no longer recited in schools. It's no longer taught. We'll be lucky to sit in a church service and even hear the word spoken. But it continues to comfort us. I have witnessed people gathering at a site of a major catastrophe and accident and heartbreak where they're lamenting and mourning the loss of a loved one. And as they gather, I am not permitted to speak. I haven't been invited as such. They don't know who I am. I'm simply an observer, and my heart is heavy for them, and I've come to support them. And a man speaks when he's spoken to, and he offers his opinion when he's asked, and I am there to serve, and I'm silent. And as they stumble, trying to find words and find meaning in their heart breaking, they stumble through this psalm, and they butcher it, and others don't know it. I've been by the bedside of many who has passed and this psalm is recited to comfort the dying. I think this psalm is so well loved and so profound because for thousands of years to millions of people it has touched lives and I think it's time we as a people revisit history. We're troubled We need to go back and ask the men and women of old, what do we do? Where do we go? And God is here to help us. He loves us. And now we begin. I underline these words because this psalm is so personal. David wrote it. He was a young shepherd boy, but writing it now as a king, he reflects back on the past, a past that is secure, one that is visible. As the world passes by him, he states this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not want. We love to hear that word want, and the translation is better Need. God will meet our needs in the riches of Christ. If we gave our children what they want, they'd all be dead. I love this story Robert Ketchum tells about a Sunday school teacher who asked her group of children if any of them could quote the entire 23rd Psalm. A little four-and-a-half-year-old girl was among those who raised their hands. A bit skeptical, the teacher asked if she could really quote the entire psalm. The little girl came to the podium, faced the class, made a little bow, and said, The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. She then bowed again and sat down. I don't think anyone could better encapsulate Psalm 23. What do you want? Do you want my destruction or your enemies? Why are you here? What is your end game? A world of equality? 
We're equal in dignity, but not in capacity. Some of you are far smarter than I am, most of you. You're certainly all better looking. I see you. But I'm still God's child. I don't despise the way he's built me or made me. I'm content. I know where I'm going and I know whom I serve. I know my point in life. I've begun this journey with the end in mind. If you think equality is going to happen, that we're all going to have the same and walk the same and look the same and march the same, we've tried that. It doesn't work. We covered it last time. It doesn't work because we have a sin nature. A world with God and a world without God. That's the two ideologies. One will prevail and people will, will, will flourish and one will prevail and there will be hundreds of millions of more people who will die. When will we stand? When will it be enough? When will we look to the past and find the strength for the future? You see, I look to the past because I'm a visionary of hope. I can't go on without believing that this has a purpose. And so I strive, and history gives me my strength. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Philippians 4.19 says, and my God shall supply all of your riches in the Lord Christ Jesus. That's the power. That's what this psalm is all about. I gave you some really fun Sunday school pictures so that you could enjoy it. David was a shepherd boy. Being a shepherd was given to the youngest. It was the least desirable, it was a lonely position. But one necessary. And David didn't despise that position in life. He found in it the hand of God directing him as to how he would lead the nation of Israel. And he took from his understanding of a shepherd so much of his life that he would pen these words that would minister to us for thousands of years and millions of people and bring great comfort. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. It's not easy to get sheep to lie down. I did some research last night. I've gotten some of the sheep to be able to sit. <laughs> Strange thing about sheep is that they will refuse to lie down unless four requirements are met. One, they must be free from all fear. What are, what are you bothered by? What are you anxious about? What are you afraid of? It takes your eyes off the Lord. You, you, you can't rest. I know. I, I, this was my week. It was, an, it was overwhelming. It was daunting. And I just gave it to the Lord. And the Bible says he gives sleep to those he loves. He loves me. That's the psalmist. He says he'll keep me in perfect peace if my mind is steadfast on him. And as I began to just pursue him, and he says, cast your cares on me, for I care for you. I gave them to him, and I just took them off. I said, Lord, they're yours, they're yours, they're yours. And he was faithful, and I fell asleep. My fear was dissipated. The second thing that sheep need to, to lay down is there must be no tension between the members of the flock. We 
one of my greatest struggles in the body of Christ is that we don't get along very well. I sat with a pastor this week that had commented that many people in the church are not happy with what you're doing. And I said, I understand, but why haven't they called me? God commands that we go to one another. We don't harbor our anger. We don't build a case against one another. We endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Could you imagine if we applied the truths, these ancient truths of God's Word to our life, what would happen to marriages and families and communities? A word gently spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. We would speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual praises, that we would minister to one another, that we would not take offense. The Bible says it's to a man's benefit to overlook an offense. We're so easily offended. Could you imagine if we, we applied the scriptures that we're, to, we're a servant of all, that we would endeavor? What would transpire if we did this? But no, the tension's not just in the world, but in the body of Christ. We can't get along in our own families, let alone the body of Christ, and God wants us to. It takes time. You have to work through things. And as I commended those who had been hurt by Pastor Marty, that they endeavored, they resolved that. That's what God intends. For us to be able to rest, there must be no tension among the members of the flock. Third, sheep must not, sheep must not be aggravated by flies or parasites or bacteria. And they must be free from hunger. This is important. And then the scripture says, he leads me beside still waters. Sheep also need water to survive. I've proven that. I'm four days now. They will not drink from noisy, turbulent waters. They require a well or slow-flowing stream. And I guess the answer for all of us is that Jesus said in John 7, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now this is figurative, but the question is, what are you thirsty for? The Lord is your source. He's the living water. He says, come to me. He says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. He's the still waters that will calm and quiet your soul. And these green pastures, I did my best, and still waters, another Sunday school picture. And then we come to this. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I love what this author writes. He says, there's an old English shepherd term called cast sheep. This is a sheep that has turned over on its back and can't get back up again. It happens frequently, and when it happens, all the sheep can do is lie on their back with its feet flailing frantically in the air. Sometimes it will bleat, but usually it'll just kick. If the shepherd doesn't arrive within a short time, the sheep will die. That's one of the reasons, I guess, in the scripture why the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one because it's detrimental, they're gonna die. When the shepherd finds a sheep on its back lying helplessly, he will turn the sheep over on its side, rub its legs to restore circulation, then lift the sheep to its feet. And so when David writes, he restores my soul. He 
You know, our, our limbs become numb. I sleep on my stomach and my arms fall asleep and I've had it where I've fallen asleep and they're both just dead and I can't even roll over. It's like... You know, it's hilarious. I wish people could film it. It would, it would be comedy. But our arms become numb, but so does our heart. You've become cold and numb to the things of God. I know when troubles surround me, I think I can handle it. And then things that I didn't want happened, and I despise him, and I'm frustrated by him. And I, I fight him, and I rage against him, and I complain to him, and, and, and I, I don't talk to him. And then he gently massages my heart. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. I try to run from it. I try to put it aside. But as he speaks to me, I awaken. He restores my soul. I awaken with hope. With renewed strength, I can walk again. That's the picture I see with David when he says he restores my soul. We stumble, we fall, we become helpless. But he ministers to us. I think of Peter, how the Lord restored him. Peter said, I'll never deny you. Three times he denied him. You've heard the story of the Anthrachia, the black coal fire, the words only used twice in the scripture, the first time when Peter's denying the Lord. The smell of an Anthrachia fire is pungent. It has a very distinct aroma. We know scientifically that the olfactory sense, the sense of smell, is the number one sense for memory recollection. As he's standing, warming himself by this fire, watching Jesus get the daylights beaten out of him, and, and people are saying, you're, you're one of his followers. He denies the Lord three times. A rooster crows. He's smelling this fumes the entire time. The rooster crows. He's broken. He's shattered. I let God down. And I've been there. Lord, I've strayed. I've gone away from you. Why would you want anything to do with me? Lord, I, I just, I, I can't do this anymore. And there on the shores as Peter has gone back to that which he knows and it's almost like we return to that which is so simple to us, which is sin. We go back to sin because we know what we're gonna get. We'll get a little high and then we'll get a real big low. At least I know what I'm getting. And then you're just crushed and you're empty and you're living a, a life of, of purposelessness. And that's why there's so much depression. Why are we here? And this depression envelops us and God says to you, I'm here. He's on the shore awaiting you. And it was Peter who saw him and he was finally desperate because he had tried everything other than God. He knew he'd let the Lord down but he saw him on the shore and he knew he was his only hope. He says, where will we go? You alone have the words of life. He puts his outer garment on, jumps in the water like an idiot, swims. When he gets to the shore, he has nothing to warm himself with. He has soaking clothes and Jesus is warming himself by an anthrachia, a black coal fire. At the Last part of John, Peter starts to smell this. Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it's taken Peter right back to that place. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And each time, Peter says, Lord, I love you. I love you. I love you. And each time, the Lord says, then feed my sheep as a good shepherd. Feed my sheep. He leads me in paths of righteousness if the sheep are left to themselves, yeah. <laughs> if sheep are left to themselves, they will continue to ga- uh, graze on the same hills until they turn it into the desert wasteland. They will gnaw the grass to the very ground, even to the roots are damaged. 
They need a shepherd who will lead them to good grazing areas. Isaiah says, all we like, all, all we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. We need a shepherd who can lead us into paths of righteousness. Our Lord does that. He goes ahead of us. He leads the way. And I love this. What way does he lead us in? John 14 says, or Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It was Supervisor Parks who sent me a letter saying, you know, we can't use um, Roundup anymore in cities and there's lawsuits and how are we gonna deal with the weeds and the rats that are accumulating and all the stuff that comes with it and the fire hazards. And so her suggestion, which was brilliant, I think, but we're gonna have to figure out how to do it, is to have sheep. So there you go. (laughs) I don't say that mockingly. I think it's kind of cool, but I don't know how to do it. But it is an idea. And then we'll move on. Paths of righteousness brings us to four. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod is a, like a club. It's used to defend, as defense uh, on behalf of the sheep. You take out a coyote, a wolf, any predator animal, a cougar, a stray dog. You, you hit the brush with it to beat the snakes away so they'll removed and they don't injure the sheep. Um, if a sheep wanders into a poisonous patch, they throw the rod to stop the sheep and so they don't eat any of the poisoned uh, elements there. But the staff, on the other hand, is a long stick with a curve on it. And the staff is for guiding. Guiding. One is to defend against the enemies of the sheep and the other is to guide the sheep along these paths, a new path or a, a gate, an entry gate. But the, sh- the, the shepherd never beats the sheep. You don't parent that way. You don't live with your spouse that way. You don't dwell with each other that way. People are not the enemy and the opportunity. Their ideology may be. And we try to reason. The time will come where it's immovable. This and no further. But we need to contend and participate in the process and remind ourselves of how to answer these problems before they get to war. The shepherd nudges them along. But the cool thing about the staff is that it also pulls sheep out of danger. When they've fallen into water, helps lift them. And I think the Lord does that with us in a wonderful way. And there you see a picture of the staff, the wolf. You see the poisonous plant that he's keeping the sheep from. And then we come to, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. This is a confusing passage. I've never seen sheep sitting at a table. Spanish is better for interpreting this passage, I believe. In Spanish, we use the word mesa for table, and that means flat hill, mesa. And this is true with other common languages. It's, it's a table for us as we read it in English, but in understanding for David and for the shepherd, in the spring after the snows melt, the shepherd will take his sheep up the mountain to finer pastures. But first he will go up into the rough wild country to check it out. 
He will take along a supply of salt and minerals to distribute over the range. He will decide where his camps will be located. He will make sure the vegetation is sturdy enough. He will check for poisonous weeds and uncover any snakes. In similar fashion, our Lord takes care of us in the presence of our enemies. In effect, he's gone ahead and checked things out. Remember in Hebrews 4 where it says, he's been tempted in all ways, yet is without sin. He came to this world. He was tested in all ways, yet was without sin. He he walked that path, the Via Dolorosa. He's taken care of all of the dangers. He has taken care of death. He has resolved it. And so he goes and prepares a place for us, a table in the presence of our enemies. Even in the midst of all the world around us, his path is one that's safe. I'm immortal until God's done with me. And even then I don't die. I just shed this earth suit and I get a brand new body eternal in the heavens. I have nothing to fear. I just follow him. I'm like a trailer behind an RV. I go where I'm towed. That's my job. Amen? Amen. Now anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. A particular problem sheep have is insects. We covered this earlier. Flies, mosquitoes, gnats. Sheep are especially bothered by the nose fly or nasal fly. This is perfect before lunch. Let's get into it. These flies buzz around the sheep's head trying to deposit eggs on the damp nose. That's why I'm rubbing because there's a fly here. Damp nose of the sheep. If they're successful, the eggs will hatch to form worm-like larvae. They crawl up the sheep's nose and cause a great deal of aggravation. So at the beginning of the fly season, the shepherd will mix a concoction, an oil concoction, in Palestine, they use a mixture of olive oil, sulfur, and spices. It would then be applied to the head of the sheep. The oil is also used to cure scabies, uh, which is highly contagious disease among sheep. It's just another way of saying that the Lord takes care of us. He takes care of us. He does. I found that this week. I didn't know what to do. I made a call to a friend. And, and I remember going in and saying, you know, he goes, you need to go see the doctor. And I, I thought he was a little pushy, you know, and he's sweet as can be. But I didn't see it as that serious. And I went in, and, and then I get the scan, and he's, you know, and, and, but it wasn't until I got to Dr. George, the gastroenterologist, and he tells me the five days in the hospital and blah, blah, blah. And I go, come on. I said, all right, worst case scenario, what happens if I don't take any antibiotics and I just go on with life? He says, you'll be wearing a colostomy bag. When do we start? (laughs) I'm better now as I stand before you. I have no pain. The swelling's gone. I'm hungry. But the Lord is good. Can we turn the air conditioner on? Thanks. Everyone's doing this. Maybe you're not, but I'm hot. But I was thinking of Dr. Spiegel, Dr. Gottlieb, Dr. George. All these doctors were so faithful and caring for me. And this is what the Lord does for us. He'll meet our needs in the riches of Christ, and then, I'm almost finished, uh, the, 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 the oil is, is the, the picture of God caring for us and ministering to us, and then we come to surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I, um, I've shared this with you, and I love it, goodness and mercy. They're the two coachmen of God. They're actually my coachmen in my life. 
I'm the trailer, the coachmen are behind, and God is pulling, and I'm just going where I'm towed. But in life, I get derailed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We get into a mess. We get on our back, and we're flailing, and our heart grows cold and numb. We're, we're troubled and burdened. And we make a mess of it. As our legs are flailing, we're, we're hurting our family. We're hurting everyone we love. We're just, we're a mess. And God finally restores our, our heart. We come alive again to him. And we say, God, why? The mess I've made. Lord, how could you forgive me? How could they forgive me? And God says, what are you talking about? I said, Lord, look. And then as I turn around, there's goodness and mercy with smiles going, what are you talking about? And they've swept up the mess. The Bible says, all things work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose, even our past. He cleans it up with goodness and mercy and he makes it a testimony. A testimony is a written history on which you can look back and you can say there's a way out of this mess. There's hope. Goodness and mercy have cleaned it up. God's word is true. This is a foundational principle that a human being in the course of this fallen history has written as a pathway for us to follow. And in the midst of the trial and the turmoil and the darkness of that hospital room, you recite this and it brings you comfort because God knows. He loves you. He wants to be your shepherd. He wants to bless you. He wants to care for you. That is a lesson of history in a time of turmoil that we would reflect back upon and find strength and hope because until we start to see how others did it in the past, we are destined to repeat it in the future. Don't get so busy that you don't have time to value the words of those who've gone before you. Don't be lazy. Pick up the word of God. And if you're unwilling to and your heart has grown cold, he has a way of getting your attention. Your heart grows cold and he's gonna make your left side swell. And then he's gonna say, rest. Lie down and listen to the voice of the past because it'll bless your presence.